today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. A new bill is out, and this one, I got to tell you, this one got my attention because, let me just tell you what it is. New York State lawmakers have approved a bill that will grant employees up to three months paid leave for bereavement. So... The expansive bill, this is from the story, the expansive bill will cover the death of a spouse, domestic partner, child, parent, in-law, grandparent, or grandchild. It was passed by the state Senate and Assembly and now awaits the signature of Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo. If someone in your family, not even your direct family, your extended family, were to die in New York, if this passes, you can potentially get 67% of your salary paid for three months while you grieve. Now, some people are calling this compassionate and civilized. Others are saying this is outrageous and is going to absolutely hammer businesses, especially small business, if suddenly they have to start covering the cost of people who are off for three months for the death of their mother-in-law or father-in-law, or whatever. Howard Levitt is an employment lawyer. He joins us to chat about this. Now, Howard, thanks for doing this today. I'm happy to. Thank you. Uh, Three months. Now, I I like to think that I'm a reasonably compassionate guy, and I would believe you're a reasonably compassionate guy. Uh, Three months for some things, if your child were to die in a horrible tragedy, that would make a lot of sense. But three months for an in-law or a grandparent or even a parent dying seems like a very long time. Well, I don't believe for a moment that anyone seriously thinks it's going to be three months at the end of it. I think it's a stalking horse. It'll probably be, end up being six or eight weeks, which is still, frankly, outrageous for an employer to have to pay the salary of any employee whose grandparent dies because it makes them uncompetitive. Doug Ford has to be rubbing his hands in glee, saying, welcome to Ontario business. It's not that bad here. It's the kind of thing Kathleen win in her worst would have would have put forward well yeah and again i i i've never had a child die and i am so grateful that that has been the case and 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 so i can't imagine what someone who has had to go through that for a, a sickness or an, well, I, an accident I guess they take two months off but they don't have the employer pay for it well point. but howard i would guess that there would be an awful lot of employers most i would be willing to bet that if you had an employee whose child died tragically that they would say take the time you need and come back when you're at i would believe maybe naively but i'd believe that would be the case here's what would really happen what they would say in most cases is get a doctor's note and take disability leave whatever the company's disability policy permitted which might only be seven days a year it might be three months might be indefinite that's probably what would happen to most canadian employers that said, that is the worst case scenario of the child passing away or your That's spouse or your spouse passing away. Yeah, the idea that you would need three months. Now, look, we all love our in-laws, but the idea that you might need three months to grieve the passing of your in-law on the back of your employer seems excessive. Well, I know that when my grandmother, who I was very close to, died, it was a labor board hearing some decades ago at this point, and um, the board was going to call it a day and i just thought i had a responsibility to my client and, and just so not realizing the board had already agreed to grant the rest of the day off i just walked back to the hearing somebody a junior might have told the board what had just happened i just received a phone call and i just soldiered on and the board said well he's going he's proceeding so we'll proceed and i was of course grief stricken because i was very close to her i loved her very much but i managed to get my work done even that afternoon let alone the next day let alone the next three months 
how many people do you actually believe from your experience would take advantage of something like this? And I don't mean take, I don't mean take advantage as far as like try to rip off the system, but would say, you know what? I, yeah, I get three months. I'm going to use it. Well, I think just what everybody would. You think so? Yeah. Regardless and, of who it was I, who died. I use your first expression of take advantage of. Look, what I find, <clears throat> if you have a compassionate policy, it is invariably taken advantage of by those who will take advantage of it. And if the law permits it, then most people will. Look, if there are people who are particularly driven and want to get ahead, and they're not in a job which is they view as drudgery, of course, it's in their interest not to take it off. But most workers would take it off. Again, I go back to the idea of, I, I, and again, maybe I'm naive, but I just think that many employers right now are not the heartless beasts, I guess, that some of them are made out to be. And, you know, we can talk about large business versus small business, but I, I just don't believe that if you were to have someone really, really close, that everybody would say, okay, you get your three days and you better be back here on Tuesday morning because that's, you know, that's all in the morning you need. I, I just don't believe that's the case no, most of the time. I don't think anybody says that. That's, that's the, not the question, though. The question is how many employers, uh, they'll all say, take whatever time you need. How many employers will say, and I will pay for it indefinitely, or I'll pay for it for three months? And I think the answer to that is not lots. Not many would say, I'll pay for it for three months, unless, of course, the disability leave policy of the company provides for that. Three months is a very, very long time. Three months is such a long time, you have to hire a new replacement. Yeah, and that's... So would, would employers say, take the time off you need? Absolutely. Would they say, take three months off and we'll pay for it? Mm, not many, in my view. That might be something that uh, I suppose people will point to a company. Let's say you work for Walmart or someplace that's a huge corporation. You say, well, what's the big deal if, you know, if I take those three months? And, and it's hidden, I guess, because you've got so many employees, although if a certain number are all off, you're right. You're going to have to start hiring new people. Could a company like Walmart survive that kind of thing? I suppose they're a profitable company, I suppose, but it would cut into their profits. Well, sure, but don't think that Walmart isn't well-organized. And don't think that Walmart makes as much money as it does and is as profitable as it does by having extra employees roaming around that it doesn't really need. It staffs to need. It staffs to expected customer demand, so it will hire or fire or lay off or recall or call people in as it actually needs them. So it doesn't have extra employees waiting to do this work, maybe for a couple of days, but certainly not for a month or more. Yeah, but even then, I, I look at a huge company and I say, I, I don't know that a lot of people are going to be very sympathetic to that large company because we hear a lot of people all the time talking about the big corporations and stuff. But even if we leave them out of this, although I think that's unfair to leave them out, but even if we do, Howard, it's where this really starts to be looking like an issue for me is when you start talking about a small company, a mom and, dad, a mom and pop shop that's somewhere or a, a storefront, and let's say they have five employees, and by some horrible coincidence, two, or two of them. Or two, or, or two employees, or, or one employee. Sure, and that person has to now be gone. Uh, that's going to have a massive, massive impact on the store, on that business, on the owners, on everybody. Uh, of course it will. And because it's such a personal business, the employee knows every little detail, and nobody else does. So you bring somebody else in to replace them for three months, and... It's going to take a long time for them to learn the ropes without a lot of people around to support them in the system, unlike a Walmart. But this, in my view, the issue is this. 
to what extent you have social justice legislation that makes a jurisdiction such as New York State in that case or Ontario through the years of the wind government just uncompetitive so that so many of my clients, because of this kind of social justice legislation, some very nice in principle, said, I can't stand being in Ontario anymore because I can't afford it. I'm losing money. shouldn't be losing money, but I am because I'm paying all of these excessive wages when I'm not getting any service in response and I've got so much regulation I can't compete. That's the problem. It's going to be a big problem for New York State. And Doug Ford is going to hold up a big welcome mat for Ontario if, if something like this passes. Well, again, I go to the small business, and the other part about this that I found immediately to be troubling uh, on this idea is that, let's say, we use your example of the small business that has two employees, and one of them is now off on a three-month bereavement leave because someone in their family passed away. And again, for my example, I'm not going to use their child or their spouse because I think many people would be exceedingly sympathetic to that. Most people, I hope, would be. But let's say it was your in-law or your grandparent who was elderly and you knew they were eventually, everybody passes away, they were eventually going to go. The owners of that business or the boss who runs that business they're never going to have the same opportunity if their spouse or their child dies or that business goes under. That's true, but I think there's another issue here. It's not a matter where our moral responsibility is necessarily. It's who bears the cost. And you're right, you've played a good moral case if your child died, and it seems heartless not to. And certainly employers should yeah, requires to let employees take as much time off as they need. But the question then becomes, if the business is going to be competitive, who shoulders the cost? Does the government pay? Does the employee pay? Or does the employer pay? Because you have too many regulations like this where the employer pays for long periods of time away, even if there's a morally justifiable case. And all of a sudden, the jurisdiction that has that kind of legislation becomes uncompetitive, as Ontario did. Well, in New York, the, the proposal that's in front of them right now would be the employer would pay for this. This is not a that's government right. program. I, I'm saying that's uncompetitive. That oh, it's very uncompetitive. It's, and again, no. if I'm the owner of that business, my employee has this opportunity if this thing passes. But if, my, if I'm the employer and my child dies and I say, I'm shutting this whole thing down for three months, your business is probably lost. Well, they're not going to shut it down. Of course they would. Any more than I could walk away from my labor board hearing when my grandmother died. That's just the reality. But Howard, that means that the people who have put their money up to risk it to run a business aren't going to get not nearly the same opportunities as the people who are working for them. It doesn't seem like it's a fair fight. Well, they never do. They can't necessarily take any bereavement leave beyond a day or two, depending on the fragility of their business and how owner-operated it is. That's the reality. You can have great legislation, but it never, it never favors the business, the small business owner. They don't get the advantage of it, or they get the disadvantage of it, which makes it a very difficult business environment in our in our province, Ontario, because of the number of this piece of legislation over the last many years. And it would make New York, it would put that into the same position, even worse. I'm going to ask you an unfair question because I'm asking you to jump into the head of people who have proposed this, but how do people, even those who are well-meaning and want to be compassionate, how do those people not understand that saddling small business, especially with these kind of costs, is going to be crushing? Well, I'll, ask, I'll answer two ways. First of all, I don't really, really intend three months. I think it's a trial balloon, and then they hope to compromise it six weeks or eight weeks. But 
putting that aside, radical leftists think in purely class terms. And employers are inherently evil, and employees inherently have rights. And therefore, if you look through things from that particular prism, then you see nothing wrong with this. Howard Levitt, employment lawyer. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Good talking. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, A new Ipsos poll says, has talked to a bunch of people from Toronto and says 50%, half of Toronto residents are avoiding crowds and public gatherings in the wake of the Danforth shooting and some other acts of violence in their city. Uh, We think of the guy who drove up the sidewalks in North York a while back and injured and killed a bunch of people. We've heard of the gun violence that is going on in that city. People are now apparently taking it to heart in a way that seems unusual for Toronto. They are not going out. At least they are not going out, they say, where a lot of other people are gathering, presumably where they believe they would potentially be a target. Dr. Gary Ellis is a head of Justice Studies Program at the University of Guelph Humber, and he's a retired superintendent with the Toronto Police Service after many years of investigative experience. Uh, Dr. Ellis, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. We always hear whenever someone says, whenever something like this happens, we always hear people say, well, this is not going to change how we live. This isn't going to change us. The bad guys aren't going to win. Is this poll an indication that, in fact, they are winning and that it is going to change people? Well, the they is, who knows. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is all very fresh, very shocking, and uh, of enormous proportions. So... Uh, there is a reaction time. There's a time when people are trying to make sense out of this nonsense. So does a, a poll like this, when it says, anyway, half the people in Toronto are concerned enough that they are changing their habits, does that make sense to you? It does. The uh, big issue, uh, I live down on the Danforth. I went for a walk there last night in the area where uh, this took place, and there were a lot of people around the memorials that are still standing, and um, it's really insulted everyone's senses. That said, when you go down there, are you looking over your shoulder or are you thinking, no, this is Toronto, I'm okay with this? No, uh, certainly things were on my mind and it's in your face again. The memorials are there and uh, it's very close to home. We're we're used to uh, violence in some pockets within the city of Toronto, some of the notorious areas in the city. But uh, the latest, the the thing on Young Street with the the van and the tragic circumstance there, the Danforth, these are hitting areas that uh, people traditionally think are safe go-to areas. And uh, uh, it's caused people to step back and just think about their own safety. Well, you mentioned some of those notorious areas. I mean, I grew up in Toronto. Uh, There was a long time when, if you said Jane Finch, People just said, I'm not going to Jane Finch for whatever. Many people had never even been to Jane Finch. We just heard the name and we knew you don't go there. Whether or not that was fair or whether or not that was overstated, that was the belief. Exactly. And in policing, I I always stayed away from uh, tagging in areas being dangerous. But everybody sort of knew the areas where the crime was taking place and it seemed to be isolated to those pockets. And what we're seeing that is different is uh, some really serious violent events that are outside of these areas that people weren't not going to anywhere. It's now actually hitting areas where people do go. Okay, so maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but it seems to be, to me, it seems like a real overreaction 
based on Toronto's history, based even on what's going on right now, the chances of you being somewhere that something like this would happen still seem extraordinarily small. I agree with you. Statistically, uh, you know, Toronto is safe. Uh, statistically, your chances of being involved in one of these situations is next to none. However, when you see children being killed, children being shot in playgrounds and so on, uh, the first thought is, I'm not going to put my family in that position. I'm not going to put my children in that position. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I got someone else to go, maybe I'll stay out of there. So the, as I said at the beginning, there there is a bit of a, this is all very new and people are reacting to it. And uh, hopefully these violent issues uh, will not continue in such a way where people can settle back into the normal. It's funny you say that because I was I was wondering if the newness of this is what's causing it. Because, when you know, look, if you were to do this same poll in Detroit or Chicago uh, to use two or maybe some other places in in the States, uh, I, I don't know what the numbers would be, but I think probably it's not new. And so the numbers might be exactly the same even for the poll, even though the amount of violence is vastly different. Exactly. And part of the thing is the human... Uh, nature is to to find the normal to find the safe i mean we we've seen uh you know the number of murders certainly in toronto and uh, uh the surrounding area um you know 20 years ago 30 years ago we would be absolutely shocked at one gun murder uh now it's a everyday event and people just carry on as if it's not happening uh that, that's a bit of a sad situation but then again the situation where you're feeling tense and anxious all the time because you're afraid of violence uh, that's no way to live either. And uh, as we said, the chances of you being a victim is very small. But Gary, I still hold to the fact that we know how safe Toronto is over overwhelmingly, and here's why. Because if you go to Detroit or Chicago, there will be dozens of shootings every night that don't even make it into the paper, don't even make it onto the news. Every single shooting in Toronto is heavily covered. That still, to me, says an awful lot about how uncommon it really is. Yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, it's a very dangerous thing to become numb and complacent about these things. The fact that we still do have a level of shock, a little level of uh, uh, anxiety over it, actually keeps the pressure on, keeps our political people supporting, keeps the police sharp, and uh, hopefully keeps the citizenry uh, concerned enough that they're going to cooperate with the police and uh, the authorities to make sure that we keep the city safe. I don't mean to keep picking on Chicago and Detroit. <laughs> if you want to suggest another American city I can pick on, I'll do that too. But I, I don't hear these same uh, stories of people saying, I'm not going to go out in public or I'm not going to go to a ball game or I'm not going to go to wherever in those cities. And I, again, maybe they've just become used to it. But that's where I would think, where it's truly dangerous, that's where I would think that people would say, no, I'm not going to do this. Not in a place, again, that's like Toronto. Well, you know, some would argue that... Uh you know, we're not Chicago, we're not New York, we are Toronto, and any gun violence, any situation like this is unacceptable. And I think that's a good place to come from. Uh, we want to keep Toronto as safe as we can. We want to uh, be uh, right on top of things. And uh, what's going on is uh, extraordinary compared to what we're, we're used to mm. here. And I think it's a dangerous thing when you compare yourself to places like Chicago or New York, then we can become very complacent. And that's not where we need to be. Well, it certainly has gone up. I mean, the gun violence is uh, shootings. There were there have been 233 shootings this year already. Uh, that's up 124% already from 2014. It will be continuing to go up. So there is something behind this. It's not like nothing. It's not like it's imagined. There is something to this. 
Uh, absolutely, and that's why uh, you want to put a lid on it. Uh, obviously, things are percolating over to what they normally are, and you got to take the heat down. And um, so there's certain efforts, uh, obviously, the police, the authorities need to take to get control over the situation. You were a cop for a long time. What is the reason why it's all of a sudden taking off? Is there a reason why this is suddenly changing? Well, you know, there's the overall societal reasons. There's how we respond to mental health. Um, certainly there's been some changes to the way the police are allowed or not allowed to do their jobs. Uh, uh, social activists seem to have a stronger voice than uh, what the police do as far as what tools the police have available to them to be used. And there may or may not be a direct correlation. That definitely has to be researched. Um, there's been disbanding of the uh, anti-violent uh, task forces uh, in the province of Ontario. Um, you know, these things all tend to add up. Um, and when you look at the predominant number of offenses, gun offenses, it's by a small number of uh, people involved in the gangster lifestyle. And these are young people, uh, or not so young, that have really been up hope in dealing or living a traditional lifestyle. And uh, they're glamorizing this very violent, artificial world that is actually becoming way too real. Uh, you mentioned some of those things. Nobody mentions those things that you talked about, though, and they are politically very incorrect to talk about. You're talking about carding, you're talking about some of the school programs and everything else that have been taken away. Uh, even mentioning them, some people will say, is almost racist how do you, if there is a belief, and it sounds like you may have a belief that at least is something worthy of exploring, how do you do that if people yell and scream at the mere mention of the idea of, well, should we re-examine this? Yeah, isn't that a problem that uh, we can be so politically correct that we may not be correct anymore? And, um, you know, uh, you did it. You went right there. Everything became racist, and uh, definitely we don't want racism in our public authorities or police. But at the same time, um, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, there were quick decisions made to do away with the police's ability to investigate people uh, on the street, something that is ingrained in Canadian law and has been for uh, certainly since I was a police officer going back to 1979 uh, to ask people on the street, hey, what are you up to? What are you doing? What's your name? Uh, now it, you need to actually go through a whole long process that uh, you can, basically handcuffs the police in doing the job. If it's done in a non-racist way, then perhaps it's acceptable. And maybe we should look at how the police do it, not necessarily taking away all their tools. So these are the discussions that need to be had. And uh, I think there is some feeling that those discussions were never had. The police were never really asked or given a voice as to uh, what they need to do the job. And uh, a small group of social activists actually took it, directed uh, the conversation, and uh, um, seemed to have influenced public policy. And maybe... We need to go back and look at that. Certainly, uh, we don't want racist policing, but at the same time, we need to give the police the tools they need to do their job. And it's a real balancing act, and there may be some conflict involved, but when it comes to young people being killed in the streets, um, maybe we need to take a really hard look on how we're policing and what tools we're giving them. Here is the real oddity when I look at this survey, because there's a lot of different numbers. We're not going to go through all of them because they've asked a whole bunch of questions in this. We don't have time for all of them. Uh, people can look it up online. The full story is there. You can find the full survey if you want to really dive deep into it. But 80% of the people who were who responded to this survey, while 50% say, I'm too concerned about my safety to go out in public places, I'm avoiding those, 80% 
say the city is safe overall, relatively speaking, that those are those two numbers don't seem to jibe. Uh, well, again, it's the, it's what is in our face right now. The publicity we've had over the last several weeks, it's been everywhere, um, you know, large public places uh, between uh, Young Street and the, the man driving down the sidewalk and then the shooting situation. Uh, there were crowded areas. So that's what's first and foremost on people's mind. But at the same time, Toronto, uh, you know, I go out walking every night and I see people comfortably walking down the streets without fear. So, you know, there's the experience uh, that people have feeling safe in their own home in their neighborhood, which is a positive thing. And then there's actually the perception uh, that comes in and is influenced by the media and what they hear that uh, can drive those answers. Well, let's talk about that perception for a second, because there's one other number I want to bring up. I'm not, as I say, I'm not going through all of them, but in this poll, six out of 10 folks who answered say they feel unsafe in a strange neighborhood after dark. And I looked at that number and I said, I'm shocked that number is not far, far higher. Six out of 10 feeling unsafe in a strange neighborhood. That, that to me is, a, I would have thought that would be nine or 10. I, again, go back to our favorite cities, go back to Detroit or Chicago and say, would you walk in a strange neighborhood after dark? And I bet the number would be 10 out of 10 saying not a chance. <laughs> yeah. And who knows how, how people are perceiving it, what questions it became uh, before that that might drive them towards that. Uh, certainly if you don't know a neighborhood, uh, uh, and it depends what the neighborhood looks like. So there's so many variables to that. If you're in a, a strange neighborhood, but there's lights and lots of other people, you're going to feel safe. If you're in a strange neighborhood and there's garbage everywhere and broken windows and you're the isolated person, you're not going to feel safe. So, um, you know, the, it's only as good as how the question's asked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but, but six out of time, 10 is a low number. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and it goes down to, uh, you know, what the people were thinking at the time of the question. So so does it, you mentioned perception, is, how much of this is a perception issue then and how much is a real issue? Uh, you, you know, it's per, perceptually, um, Toronto, uh, people have fear because of what they've seen, what they've heard, and if it touches you in any way, you're going to actually reflect on that. But the reality is, per capita, that your chance of being a victim of violent crime is next to nil in Toronto as compared to some of those other cities you mentioned. So, um, you know, but perception is what drives behavior. And, uh, you know, the people saying they're avoiding crowds and so on and so forth. Uh, we have a lot of open, square public events. And we'll see. We have, uh, uh, you know, the uh, different events coming. I believe it's this weekend. We have uh, the Taste of Danforth. Let's see how it affects that. Um, you know, uh, we will see actual behavior. And if people get through it and get past that weekend, uh, perhaps you'll see things return to a, back to normal. Yeah, I, uh, well, I would think, I mean... Again, maybe I, I'm not a police officer. I would think the safest place in Toronto this weekend will be the Danforth. I mean, honestly, once something has happened in a certain area, it seems like that would be the place that would be the safest spot in the whole city. Well, you know, uh, Pascal said, never be diverted from the truth by what you would like to believe. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, risk management is, uh, you know, you, m- you might not be able to, what they say, if it's predictable, it's preventable. Uh, well, I don't think you can prevent things when you have lots of people, but if it's predictable, it's certainly manageable, and the police will have to be very aware of what's going on there. Uh, you know, uh, again, there's different people with different states of mind, and uh, you definitely have to be aware and account for every possibility. 
just out of curiosity, I say when you have not been a cop, you were a cop for many years, but outside of your policing duties, when you weren't in uniform, when you were just out in Toronto, you or your family or anyone you knew, how many people, yourself included, or anyone you knew ever ran into any kind of violent crime in Toronto that you know of? Uh, I guess I have bad luck. I've ran into a couple of incidents, but, uh, uh, you know, generally, um, you don't run into anything. And uh, overall, people are naive, and I think that's a good place to be as to, uh, you know, the criminal element in the city. So, uh, you know, I run into it maybe because I'm a little more uh, perceptive as to what's going on. But uh, most people are blissfully unaware of uh, what may be going on in the back alleys, as they say. So how does, as we've just got a minute or two left here, how does Toronto deal with this then? Because it, it is, there is a perception issue as well as a reality issue. And so the reality issue is these things do happen occasionally, but now you've apparently got people saying, no, I'm not going to participate in public events and these kind of things. How does Toronto start to handle this and, and tell, how does it give the message that it's, this is really not what Toronto is? Well, well, they're on the pathway. I mean, there's several things. There was the celebration. There was the take back the streets uh, events that they've had. Um, there, there's the people sort of supporting each other. The memorials. This is all positive, showing we care. And as a city, uh, people care about the city, and that's that helps to deal with the perception. The reality too is, as I said, you have to keep the lid on it. Um, you know, the the criminal element. Um, you can't let them run wild, and it's shooting for shooting and back and forth, and the police need to uh, be able to intervene, uh, take control of the situations, get as many guns off the streets as they possibly can, and uh, it, it has to be an ongoing issue. We have to deal with the causes of crime. The uh, you know uh, That's the bigger picture. We have to deal with the poverty situation, the lack of hope, the mental health. That's the social side of it. So it all goes together to make a healthy, safe city, and there's no simple answer, but there's certainly uh, a direction that we can, and I believe we are moving in, in the city to uh, keep it a great city. Yeah, I was going to say, last time Toronto had a big PR crisis from something bad happening was probably about 15 years ago. They had SARS, and the reaction to that was to hold a giant concert, but considering this poll, I'm not sure that putting a whole bunch of people in one spot is going to be is going to answer well, the situation. Know, the they did it. They had the, the events right after the shootings on Danforth where thousands of people were on the streets. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, there, there's a celebration, and there, there's something to be said that people are not living in fear, and they're saying, hey, this is our city. We're not going to live in fear. And, uh, you know, I, I, I saw that, and I thought, you know, this is a good thing. We're not hiding uh, from uh, things out of fear. We're saying, no, we're not going to hide. We're going to be out there. And like I said, I was out for a walk last night, nice hot night, and there were, the place was packed 10 o'clock at night, the same time as when this incident happened. There were people everywhere uh, in that location. So, uh, you know, it's very positive in that sense. Dr. Gary Ellis, the head of the Justice Studies Program at the University of Guelph-Humber and a retired superintendent with the Toronto Police Service. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. You're welcome. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was in Uganda recently, was over there with my wife. Now, it is not a wealthy country. And the reason I bring this up, it is not a wealthy country at all. Yet, everybody, and I mean everybody over there has a cell phone. And having lived in Canada and having grown up here and spent pretty much all my life here, I was initially puzzled by this when I saw all these people with their cell phones because I am used to paying bills in Canada 
And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world can these people who really, many of them have almost nothing, how can they possibly afford to be paying for these cell phones? Well, then I discovered the trick, the answer. They aren't paying these bills. They aren't paying the bills that we are paying in Canada. Their bills, as is the case in almost everywhere else in the world, is way, way, way lower than what we pay in Canada. And I'm sure you know this already. I'm sure every time you get your cell phone bill, you are saying, how is it that everywhere else in the world pays far, far less than ours? Canada's cell phone bills are among, if not are, the highest in the world. Greg O'Brien is editor and publisher of cart.ca. He joins me now. Greg, thanks for doing this today. Oh, no problem. There are, and I was looking this up today, trying to find a good explanation. There are endless explanations, excuses, whatever, for why Canadians pay what we do. The biggest is that we're a very big country and we have to have infrastructure and everything else. But why is it that Canadians seem to get hammered on this more than anywhere else? Well, you you sort of went through all the, uh, the excuses already. I mean... Um, th- there's a number of reasons, uh, you know, and if, if you want to look at, at countries like Uganda, I mean, our, our standard of living is, is way, way different than, yes. you know, whatever the telecom provider is in Uganda, you can bet they're not paying the same wages as what Rogers and Bell are, you know, Rogers and Bell wages are, are much, much higher. Uh, the costs in the economy are a bit different, uh, or a lot, not more than a bit different, a lot different. But if you want to compare, you know, say to Australia or the UK and the U S uh, yeah, we are paying more, we are paying higher rates here. There's a number of reasons for that, and a lot of it is uh, has to do with just the, you know, the companies are able to price the way they can because they, they can. They're keeping their margins high. But that's not a comforting answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it, it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> no, and the fact that it's they are high because they can be high is not what anybody wants to hear. We want to hear that there's some deep, insightful, and I'm not putting it on you, but that there's some real reason beyond anybody's control. Clearly, that's not necessarily the case. Well, no, there there are real reasons. You know, we've got 36 million people spread out over the second largest country in the world. That is a real cost. Um, there are rules surrounding the, when you deploy Spectrum um, as a wireless company, you have to offer the same type of service in Hamilton as you do in Moosonee. Um, and when you get to Moosonee, it's a very expensive proposition to provide LTE, you know, 4G service compared to downtown Toronto, where there's, you know, millions of people in Moosonee, there's, you know, a thousand. So those are very real costs. There's other regulatory costs and things like that that are a bit higher here. Um, But they're really, you know, it it really is hard to argue um, that that prices uh, aren't a lot higher here than in other places. But that may be beginning to change. Well, we do have three big carriers in this country. They're not the only three, but they're the big three, and they do seem to control an awful lot. And the confusing part for a lot of people is, why would one of them, at least this is the theory, it, we live in a capitalist competitive market, why would one of them not try to capture the market by dropping their price to try and steal the competitors away? That doesn't ever seem to happen. Well, no, they've, they've each got, you know, essentially a third of the market. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a pretty good business for, for them and their shareholders. Um, and they do provide very, very good network quality. I mean, I've traveled to the States, I've traveled around the world, I get drop calls and no network all over the place. That happens very rarely here. So they do have very good network. But what's coming up alongside these big three is Freedom Mobile, which is owned by Shaw Communications. Now, they are happier with lower margins, and they came to market uh, just in the past two weeks with some very, very low-cost uh, c- competition to, to the big three. 
And there are some other places. I mean, if you go to Saskatchewan or Manitoba or Quebec, they have their own provincial ones that are also lower. And so you can get lower rates in those provinces. We don't really have, well, we have the, what you just brought up now, Freedom Mobile in, in Ontario, but we haven't had that until now, really. Right. Well, it, it was Wind Mobile, um, and they had a tough mm. time co- competing just because they didn't have the, didn't have the financial backing that Shaw has. Um, you know, Quebec has Videotron, out east has the East Link, uh, Manitoba. They no longer have their own provincial one because Bell bought it, but uh, they've got a new one starting there called ExploreNet. Um, Sastel has or Saskatchewan has Sastel, their own Crown Corp um, wireless company, and and prices are actually cheaper in, in Saskatchewan as well. Um, you know, because of the strong provincial uh, competitor there. Okay, so the idea that somebody might start up, that let's say you or I decided we've got some bucks and we want to start up because we see a chance here to get into this market like some of them have, how that has happened in a lot of other industries. Why not in the cell business that would have driven down prices? Is it simply because of the cost of infrastructure that's prohibitive across this country? Uh, 100%. I mean, before you even built a tower or tried to stock a store with handsets, you'd need at least a billion dollars just to buy the airwaves that you would need. Um, it, it's, it's that expensive. And is that the same every, like, does that exist? Does that same competition or lack of competition exist in other parts of the world? Like when, when you go to Germany or England or somewhere else and their prices are considerably lower, are they lower because of market pressure or are they just lower because of numbers of people or because they're just lower? It's, it's a whole, there's just a, it's really hard to compare country by country. There's a bunch of different reasons. But if you look at each country, each one has two, three, four competitors maximum. You know, they've got some, some you know, five and six that play around the edges. But there are really, you know, if, if you go to the States, uh, Verizon and AT&T are by far the top two competitors. Um, you know, Sprint and T-Mobile who are, who are getting together are, you know, number three at a, at a very great distance. And here's the other challenge of this is that, with almost everything, you know, and we were talking earlier in the show, we were talking about beer and buck of beer prices and everything else. If you were to come into the market, uh, you could choose not to buy beer, first of all, but you could also then find competitors. You can't in today's world for most people, you can't just say, I'm not having a cell phone, especially if you're still in, in your working years. It would be very difficult to just say, I'm not going to participate in that market. You almost have to, which forces you into one of these three, which then allows them to continue their margins. True. I mean, you know, the, the, I, I had an interview with the, the president of Freedom Mobile a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, he talked about how their, their sales margins are in the mid-20s and in terms of percent. And if you talk about Bell, Rogers, and Telus, theirs are in the mid-40s. So it's a, it's a business decision that Freedom has made to go with less, less margin and try and, uh, try, try and get more customers. Um, but when you're talking about the big players in the market, they don't often um, have a price war because it's, in the long run, it doesn't, um, it doesn't make sense economically for them. No. Why, why would you try and do that and drive everybody's share down when we're all just happily cruising along here where we are? Yeah, and, and most people, I mean, Canada's a pretty rich country. Most people, I mean, they, they, know, the, they know the bills are expensive. Um, but they pay them. And if you wanted to, you, you could really get along without a cell phone if you lived in an urban area because there's all kinds of Wi-Fi calling apps. Mm. Um, you know, you can be in a Wi-Fi zone uh, all over the place in downtown Hamilton and make your calls from there, and, and, you, and you, don't need, uh, you, you don't need a cell plan. You just, need the, you just need the handset itself or whatever device you have. Greg O'Brien, editor and publisher of cart.ca. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. 
It's uh, my only complaint. If all this money is flowing into Rogers' pockets, why do the Blue Jays stink so badly? Pay for bigger like compete with the Dodgers, compete with the Yankees, compete with the Red Sox. Then I probably might not feel so bad, and a lot of other people wouldn't about paying my bills. Although I'm not a Rogers subscriber, maybe if I signed up, they'd do that. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.